There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence, Lord. Well, friends, today, as I said, we're going to continue on in our sermon series called After We Believe. And, and we're talking about just that. What, what is this Christian life about? After we make that initial decision of faith, after we make that initial step of belief, what now? What do we do? Who are we to be? Well, I'd like to start by reading a couple passages, and we're going to dig into them a little bit. Uh, but the first one, uh, it comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and this comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's what we call the Beatitudes. We've walked through this a little bit before, uh, but we're going to kind of approach it from a, maybe a little bit different angle. Uh, but I want you to hear these words of Jesus. This is chapter 5 in the Gospel of Matthew. I'll read verses 3 through 11. Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I invite you to hear these words uh, from 1 Peter in chapter 2. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your scriptures and the ways that you speak to us in and through them. I pray, God, that you would speak to us today. Speak to our hearts, that we would know you more, that we would love you more, that we would be transformed. All of this we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You know, I think about these scriptures, and uh, we're going to tie the two together, uh, because I think you, you have a, a, a full picture of the gospel when we do just that. Uh, so we're going to dig into that in just a bit. But as, as I was thinking about this, we're thinking about the nature of the church, and what we're called to. You know, we are witnesses to the kingdom of God. The, we, we, the church, anticipate the coming kingdom. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? More, more maybe a, a better question, how do we prepare for that? That's what we're going to be talking about today. I think about this, and I, and I think about all the different metaphors that we use for the church, right? We talk about the church as a body. Scripture talks about church as a body. Uh, we've been using the, the metaphor of, of, of crossing the bridge over to glory, and that's an individual thing, but that's what we as a church are to be about as well, journeying across the bridge, making, 
those decisions of heart, making those habits of heart that transform us, that make us more and more like Jesus. But one of the, one of the metaphors that I, I, I love the most, it comes straight from Scripture, is that of the bride and the bridegroom, of, of Jesus and the church. We see this all throughout Scripture, of, of the church being compared to the bride of Christ, Jesus being the groom. I, every time I, I celebrate a, a wedding, I, I point this out because I think it's so important. You know, when we celebrate an actual wedding, you know, you can picture the, the bride walking down the aisle and the groom standing, waiting to receive his bride, and all eyes are on the bride. And, and it's just this amazing picture the groom waiting to receive his bride. Jesus waiting to receive His bride, the church. But I think about also what goes into all that wedding stuff, right? You think about a bride and a bridegroom, and you think about all of the preparation that goes into making that day what it is. I mean, those of you who are married, think about all the time, energy, money spent preparing for that exact moment, right? Uh, making sure everything is perfect. Making sure you know the bride, especially their hair is perfect, the dress is perfect. Everything is going perfectly. It's no different for us, the church, as we prepare for the kingdom of God. As we prepare to be received by Christ. Well, what is it exactly that we're preparing for? How do we go about that? I'm reminded in that, you know, drawing on Second Peter and what Second Peter or First Peter, what what he's saying in there. I'm reminded of the mid 20th century theologian and martyr Christian Bon, or I'm sorry, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote, "When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die." We hear that, and that's just a shock to the system, right? When, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. That's the shock. When you think about Jesus, and Jesus, He talks about God's love for creation and humanity, of course. But He never said, as some think, God loves you and wants you to have a wonderful life, has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus never says this. He also didn't say, I accept you as you are so you can now happily do whatever comes naturally. Instead, he said, if you want to become my followers, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Jesus spoke of losing one's life in order to gain it, as opposed to you know, clinging to that life and therefore losing it. He spoke of this in direct relation to himself and his own soon-to-come humiliation and death followed by resurrection and exaltation. You know, in exactly in line with the Beatitudes of his Sermon on the Mount, he was describing and inviting his followers to enter an upside-down world, an inside-out world, a world where all things we assume about what it means to be human and, and what it means to flourish are totally set aside. Totally set aside and a completely new order is established. Completely new. 
It's a world pervaded by His now but not yet kingdom. A world that anticipates all things being fully made new. A world where followers of Jesus take up the vocation of priests and rulers like we talked about last week. Priests and rulers reigning as co-heirs of God's promise with Jesus. Jesus the great high priest. Jesus the king. But life, human existence, we've talked about this throughout the sermon series, is not about biding our time until we can one day be whisked off to heaven. It's about journeying on toward the glory that God created us for. It's about having the character and the image of Christ remade within us. It's about being made more fully human. More fully human. In other words, more into who God created us to be. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the nature of the Christian faith after we believe. So as we continue in our Lenten journey, we're seeking to be reconverted, right? Reconverted. We're seeking to be saved, right? I, I, we, we talk about salvation as just a one-time one thing. Um, we always talk about it in, in the past. I was saved. But I think we need to be talking past, present, future. I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. This is a continual process of God saving us, of God remaking us. We're seeking to be reconverted. We're seeking to refocus our attention on Jesus. And in so doing, we're seeking to turn away from the sin that lurks in those dark corners of, of our hearts. And all of this is, is really to move step by step closer to becoming the humans we were created to be. Right? That's what we talk about. Transformation. I love the word transformation. We're intended to be transformed. But throughout this season, we're talking about and cultivating what we call Christian character. right? The, the virtues that exist as indicators of a renewed life in Jesus. But at the center of everything we're talking about, you know, the, the center of all human life, actually, is Jesus. His crucifixion and His kingdom. It's that twofold nature of Jesus' life that, that I think shapes everything about how we journey across that bridge, across that river. When it comes to talking about Jesus and virtue, I think there are some troubling issues, somewhat troubling issues that arise in our, in our current cultural context. But it seems like the typical assumption for many is that when we're talking about Jesus and virtue or Jesus and Christian character, we're talking about Jesus merely as a moral example. Right? That, that the point of Jesus' life was to simply show us how it's done. Then we can move on with it. We try to be like Him. But I, I think about this, and holding up Jesus simply as a moral example of how to live a moral life, I, I, this struck me. It, it seems a lot like holding up like Patrick Mahomes as an example of how to throw a football. Right? He, you know, thinking personally, even if I started now, right now, and practiced 12 hours a day, worked out uh, in, during that time, every single day, 
and just building muscle and just like started chugging protein shakes or raw eggs or something. Even if I did that for 12 hours a day, it is very unlikely that I would ever be able to do what Patrick Mahomes can do. And there are many people out there who are much younger than me, much stronger than me, much more athletic than I am, who are trying their hardest to do what Patrick Mahomes does, but still find they cannot. Likewise, watching Jesus makes me, and I would suggest probably most of us, feel like we do when watching Patrick Mahomes throw a football. Only more so. Even more than that, the suggestion that we treat Jesus merely as a moral example can be a way of holding the message of God's kingdom and the meaning of His death and resurrection just kind of at arm's length. We keep our distance from all that stuff. Making Jesus simply the supreme example of someone who lived a good life is appealing, but I think it's too safe. It's too safe. It's not who Christ revealed Himself to be. It doesn't go far enough. It takes away the far more dangerous challenge of supposing that God might actually be coming to transform this earth. And us. With it. With the power and justice of of the kingdom of God. And I think it neatly and conveniently helps us to avoid the fact that this could only be achieved through the shocking and horrifying events of Jesus' death. You know, Jesus as moral example is a domesticated Jesus. He doesn't say, this is how it's done, copy me. He says, God's kingdom is coming, take up your cross and follow me. This is the twofold nature of the Christian life here and now. The kingdom comes, we've got to take up our cross and follow Jesus. God's kingdom is coming, that's the goal. So we are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. These are the steps to that goal, as well as the way that Christ-like character is formed within us. Taking up our cross is, is, is the path. But it's also the way that those habits and that virtue is formed within us. Establishing those good habits in place of the bad habits that just seem to grab hold of us. And this all along the way makes us more and more like Jesus. So we find this laid out in the two passages I read for today. You know, God's kingdom comes. When we think about God's kingdom coming, we find the nature of God's kingdom laid out most fully in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's in chapters 5-7, through seven, Matthew's Gospel. And, and we especially find it in what we call the Beatitudes at the beginning of the sermon, what I read for today. But these statements, these blessings, they're not describing the way things currently are. Right? They're not describing the way things currently are because, you know, we can look out and sometimes there are some, some, some of those who are, are not being comforted, um, who are not at peace. Right? Not describing the way things currently are. And they're not trying to teach us some hidden reality that if only we have like a secret decoder ring, we'll be able to see it more fully or something. 
They're announcing a new state of affairs. They're announcing a completely new reality, a new reality that is in the process of bursting out into the world. They are declaring that something that previous, previously was not the case is now going to be. That the life of heaven, which seems so distant and unreal, is in the process of coming true here on earth. In these nine blessings, Jesus is saying that the goal is the kingdom. Right? The kingdom comes. And it's a time of comfort, of heaven coming to earth at last, of the renewal of creation, of plenty, of mercy, of reward, and maybe above all, of seeing God Himself. By making these statements, Jesus is saying that this goal has arrived in the present. It's here, in Him. And that those who follow Jesus can begin to practice here and now the habits of heart and life that align with the way things are in God's kingdom. You know, the way they eventually will be, for sure, that's the not yet part, but also the way they already are because Jesus is here. The new creation has arrived in Christ. And so we rightly anticipate the now but not yet kingdom here and now. And we do so by making habits of Christ-like virtues, like humility, like meekness, mercy, purity, peacemaking, etc. And when the final kingdom comes, when it comes fully on earth as in heaven, you know, we won't just stop doing those things, right? It's not like we, we build up, build up, build up, and then fine, we can just throw that aside and just do whatever. No. Those things become more complete in us because that's the nature of the kingdom. We anticipate the kingdom by living fully into it, by making those habits, those choices, those decisions to live more fully into the reality that Christ has proclaimed. And it's not the, the powerful, the wealthy, you know, those, those things, those virtues that pass in our world are not the virtues of the kingdom. It's meekness, it's mercy, it's peacemaking. We talk about new life, about new covenant, about new creation. Well, these blessings, these beatitudes, are the signs of a life lived and settled into that new reality. Those are the signs. Jesus is saying that now He is here, God's new world is coming to birth. And once we realize that, we will see that these are habits of heart which anticipate the new world here and now. I think it's also telling how, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew even, how Jesus puts His program for God's kingdom in, into motion, into effect. Right? Not, not long after His kingdom inauguration address in Matthew, right, the, the Sermon on the Mount, He sends His disciples out into the towns and villages. And they find, to their astonishment, 
that the things Jesus had been doing, especially the healings, and the healings were, were signs, right? They were signs of a powerful and striking new thing that God was doing, a fresh work of God in the world. But especially these healings, that, that those things were happening through the disciples as well. You know, the disciples, you know, Jesus makes his, his inaugural address, Sermon on the Mount, sends the disciples out, and they weren't given rules to follow. They weren't given statements of belief to memorize. They also weren't told to now do whatever their heart led them to do, whatever their heart desired, because, right, Jesus knew that that wasn't such a good thing because the heart's pretty deceitful. Instead, they were sent out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do the very same kingdom-building work that Jesus had inaugurated. God's kingdom comes. You know, that's the goal we must get right. That's what we've been talking about so much throughout the sermon series. We have to keep hammering that home. That's the goal. God's kingdom comes. Then comes the other part. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You know, be, Being sent out into the world, declaring, building, living into, cultivating the virtue of an otherworldly kingdom is probably not going to make us very many friends. I think Jesus. It may well be a source of ridicule. It may well be a source of outright resistance or opposition or even suffering. Again, we do well to remember that we do not follow a safe or domesticated Jesus. The life that Jesus calls us to is far from safe and domesticated. He, and He's not merely a moral example, but the inaugurator of an upside-down, inside-out kingdom that only seems that way because you know, we know that it is the world that is really upside-down and inside-out. I think, is that tag team? Is that from, whoop, there it is. Upside down and inside out. Oh, sorry, I'm going way off, off the rails. Sorry, this shows you where my heart is right now. <laughs> Don't, yeah, everybody's going to be looking that up as soon as we go. <laughs> but the kingdom of God truly is upside down and inside out. And he's going to show all these people what it's all about. Um, but the kingdom that he inaugurated was actually fully inaugurated in and through his crucifixion. Right, that's the center. This was to be the nature of the kingdom here and now. The world could not accept the kingdom that Jesus came proclaiming, so they killed him for it. But Jesus' response to the world's opposition is, is, is so vitally important for us to grasp. Because it wasn't condemnation, right? Jesus' response to the world completely rejecting Him, even killing Him, wasn't condemnation. And it wasn't to call down the wrath of God on them, smiting them from the earth. The response to the world's opposition came from the lips of Jesus as He hung on that Roman cross. And it was to forgive those who were torturing and killing Him. You know, this isn't just a change in degree 
of the virtue or the character that existed in the world prior to Jesus entering the scene. It just wasn't to, to make it a little better. This was a complete upheaval. This is something different. Something new altogether. In this passage from 1 Peter, Peter is lifting up Jesus' way as a pattern. right? As, as an example, but not as simply a moral example to, to just of how we are to face some sort of temptation, whatever that temptation may be, but of a completely different way of doing things altogether. It's the kingdom way. The same way that we see in in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's the way of the cross. The way of self-emptying, self-sacrificing love. In Peter's words, it's the way of trusting the One who judges justly. Peter is calling us, as those following in Jesus' footsteps, to give of ourselves in that same way. Not because it is what objectively works in the world. We see often enough that it really doesn't work in the world sometimes. But because this is the way of the upside-down, inside-out kingdom. Peter is reminding us that Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurated a completely new thing. A completely new pattern of life. And no one in the ancient world, pagan, Jewish, had ever imagined living like this. It hadn't happened before. Ever. In so many ways, it's, it's the air we breathe. We can talk about meekness and compassion and those types of things as, as virtues. But we only talk about those as virtues because of Jesus. Even non-believers. All of creation. <laughs> the culture. We can only lift these up as virtues because of Jesus. Jesus had, had actually done it. And the Sermon on the Mount shows that He expects His followers to do it too. We are called into this life. This life of virtue. It's different. Unlike anything the world could have ever thought up. You know, Jesus, He came to rescue Israel. He came to rescue humankind. And thereby to rescue all of creation. And with that, everything is different. Everything has changed. Jesus came, in fact, to launch a new creation. And with it, a new way of being human. This new way of being human involves having our hearts cleansed. Involves having our hearts softened. Turned upside down. Turned inside out. We are called to be rulers and priests. And we have to learn from square one what that means. So that involves practice. We have to practice virtue of a kind never before imagined. The virtue laid out in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The virtue laid out in all of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And virtue, kingdom virtue, Christian character, life in Christ, the bridge from initial faith to glory, however we want to talk about it, boils down to two things. That God's, God's kingdom comes and that we are therefore to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. 
I pray that that's what we would dedicate ourselves to. You know, Peter talks about the reward for enduring suffering, right? By forgiving, by bearing it. This is the way of the kingdom. Living the meekness, being peacemakers, reflecting who Jesus is. I pray that we as a community would fully live into that as we journey across this, this bridge to glory. And friends, we can't do that on our own. It's kind of been a theme throughout this, this sermon series. We, we cannot do that on our own, right? I can't throw a football like Patrick Mahomes just out of you know, pure can-do attitude, right? I'll never be able to throw a football like Patrick Mahomes, right? Um, but to be like Jesus, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit who walks with us, who empowers and enables us. And we have the gift of the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. We need to lean on each other. We need to do this together. Continue to hold each other up, build each other up, encourage one another, challenge one another. I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us in that way, would knit us together in that way. That we, we are called to something different, not just a degree better or you know, a, a degree um, more challenging even than the, what the world puts out there. We are called to be different altogether, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. I pray that for us, we would know that God's kingdom comes and that we would be empowered to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Amen. Shame.